Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. In this episode, you're going to hear from an intensive care unit doctor who's on the front line in the war against COVID-19, or what the media sometimes call coronavirus. But first, just a little bit of background information. I graduated from Selwyn House High School in Montreal more than 30 years ago. My class was small, only about 40 people. But some of my classmates went on to do amazing things. The graduate from our class who's probably done the most to make the world a better place is Talat Chugtai, who made a name for himself as a world-renowned thoracic surgeon here in Canada and now serves as director of the Trauma Intensive Care Unit, or ICU, at Hamad General Hospital in Qatar. Those three letters, ICU, are on everyone's mind right now because ICUs are where the most severely afflicted COVID-19 cases end up, often hooked up to life-saving ventilators. And in some parts of the world, such as Italy, doctors have had to make tragic choices about which patients get spots in the ICU and which do not. ICU capacity and policy, in other words, lies at the very heart of the discussion of how to save as many COVID-19 patients as possible. As far back as 2005, Talat was researching another coronavirus, in fact, co-authoring a paper titled Elective and Emergency Surgery in Patients with Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS. And in that same year, he left his comfortable life in Canada to save some of the thousands of Pakistanis injured by the earthquake of October 8, 2005. On Wednesday, he spoke to me from Qatar about how this health emergency is different from that sort of natural disaster, about the challenges faced by ICU staff, even when there's no pandemic, and about the steps all nations need to take to ramp up the fight against COVID-19. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Talat, I'm guessing that, like almost everybody else, you started hearing about this disease maybe in January? When did it become part of your professional life, preparing for the threat from COVID-19? Yeah, as you say, uh, most of the world knew this started in end of the year. We're just kind of watching what's going on in China, interesting things coming out of there. And then in January, I had a patient in my ICU who's a pilot for Qatar Airways, and uh, he had been to China within the last two weeks. So, you know, I had to isolate him and test him. And the test at that point we didn't have. We had to send it to Holland. So the poor guy was stuck in the ICU negative pressure room for two weeks. <laughs> totally asymptomatic, totally fine. He'd recovered from his trauma, minor trauma. And, uh, you know, he was very anxious. I don't have uh, COVID. I don't have coronavirus. And we said, well, you know, you should read the news in China. We should probably test you. Finally, he was negative and everything's fine. But that's kind of what started it. And then we had this index, you know, we had one or two cases like everybody else, but then we had this index, 200 people in, in one day, two Bangladeshi guys who infected like an entire compound of people. So then we started realizing, okay, and then the numbers were coming out of China and then slowly out of Italy. And we realized this is a, this is a big thing. So we should be ready for it. Now, as a journalist, I was getting my information primarily from other journalists. Were there resources that you were consulting to keep yourself 
educated on the information that doctors and other part of the world had? In the ICU community, we're all kind of connected. So we all have these links to the big ICU guys in, in China, in South Korea, in Singapore, um, in Italy. And these are actually, you know, and in the U.S. too, these are leaders in, in critical care. But we were getting a lot of information from the social media as well. I mean, I think everybody's getting their information from the same place these days. Even, you know, of course, in medicine, I'm reading New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Lancet, and things like that. But also we're getting information from the news. I was reading the New York Times and learning something every day. How dense are the networks of information flow between people who work at different ICUs? Yeah, so conferences is a big thing. We make our contacts, and so everyone knows somebody who knows somebody. So our leaders in ICU here, which I guess include me, like my contacts are in Canada. So often I'll come back to the guys here and say, oh, by the way, they're doing this at Sunnybrook. And they're like, oh, really? Sunnybrook, of course, is a major facility here in Toronto, Canada. Exactly. And uh, that's where I worked and trained. And and so I have these instant, I can message someone, what's your protocol for treating COVID right now? What do you do? What's your... Uh, a disaster plan management right away. And now the next day, everybody here will know what's happening in Toronto. So similarly, you know, we have people that are very well connected in Europe. As you know, there's a lot of, as you may know, there's a lot of doctors from the UK here. So huge connections. And so instantaneously via WhatsApp and via emails, you're getting unpublished data. You're getting, hand, you know, like firsthand information on what's going on. And the China actually a connection is more like they were very proactive in publishing what they're doing. And I don't know how they did it in the midst of such a crisis. They were able to write booklets and and protocols and guidelines and share them in the ICU community, once that goes to a central place like the European Society of Inter Intensive Care Medicine, then that just, you know, propels and gets to everybody. Well, so this is a key point because I think as is widely acknowledged, in the very first days of the COVID-19 crisis, the Chinese themselves were, were not completely transparent, certainly at the political level. And as a result of that, you still have people in the West who are less than trustful about official pronouncements. But it sounds like that was at the political level. Beneath that, at a professional level, did you see that Chinese doctors were at least somewhat free to share their information and talk to their contemporaries around the world? Absolutely. There was a big difference. Uh, what what you would hear in, in the Chinese case, what you'd hear in the news and the social media would be not very reliable. But what would be disseminated to like the societies, the critical care medicine societies by these doctors, you know, uh, publishing in journals of reputation, uh, that would be trustable because these journals wouldn't publish these things. I mean, it's amazing they were able to publish things, not just write things, but actually get them emergency publications out of it. If you check JAMA in that, in that time, and even up to now, all the articles of the month or of the week are all from China. And so they were able to get that out there. And, and JAMA being Journal of the American Medical Association? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's one of the, you can say, the top three journals that we, we look at in critical care medicine in the ICU world. Following that initial stage where things were being maybe censored at a political level, you think that there is now, broadly speaking, a, a candid conversation at least going on among medical professionals. And I say that because even in Western countries like Canada and United States, you see these stories about hospitals and health networks telling doctors they're not allowed to talk about this. But it sounds like that's a phenomenon at the official communications level and corporate level. But it sounds like you're having no problem uh, sharing international data and best practices. Is that right? Absolutely right. That's the basis for all the treatments, what the experience in China has been. They're sending teams to Italy, advising them on how to deal with their crisis and they're welcoming. We're getting Chinese equipment. We're getting Chinese doctors to tell us, you know, what they suggest. Now, the South Koreans, of course, have been held up by many, and I guess including me, 
for the success of their early protocols in regard to testing. Is that something you're also examining in regard to public health? Yeah, so testing is a big issue everywhere uh, in a few ways. One, your numbers, as you always write about uh, in your write-ups, you know, the numbers are all about the testing, the total numbers at least. But also testing right now is ramping up everywhere because people are realizing the decisions you make depend on the numbers. So, you know, for example, ICU, it is pretty much a straight percentage of how many percent of people will need ICU. So you need to know your numbers so you can prepare. So you'll see everywhere, especially countries that are, you know, affluent like the U.S. are ramping up their testing. And even our numbers have gone up in the last few days because we started doing random sample testing. So testing is a, is one of the big keys, that's for sure. I think in casual discourse, you have suggested to me that one leading indicator we should be looking at are ICU admissions, intensive care admissions, and that if we knew that statistic, it tells you a lot about how big a crisis is, and then you could stop just looking at how many cases there are, because cases can be mild, they can be asymptomatic. Is there a database of how many COVID-19 patients are in intensive care around the world? So there, I haven't seen one database, some, a database summarizing uh, the whole world, but you'll see, uh, and I haven't gone through in detail, but the Europeans are good at putting together the UK numbers. Uh, we are doing our own numbers every day, twice a day. We analyze the, the ICU numbers and what it represents in the total. I'm sure the US is doing the same thing. Um, it's just these big data um centers that like, that you follow aren't incorporating that, you know, and unfortunately, they often just say mild or severe. Severe is a very broad term uh, if you, if you want to think about ICU. And so the most important thing here that's going on, the, the infections there, people are going to get it. Most of them are going to be okay. And you can deal with them. You can quarantine them at home or in, you know, uh, shopping centers or field hospitals. The problem in the world is, uh, you can see this in Italy and even the U.S. soon, is ICU resources. It's all about over, overwhelming your ICU resources. So the really the number that matters is how many people get into the ICU, how many available beds do you have in the ICU, and how long they stay in ICU. And then of course your ICU mortality, what percent of people in ICU die? Because if you're not letting a patient into the ICU, like in Italy, you're 65 years old, you have diabetes, well, sorry, we're not going to offer you a ventilator. Of course, that patient's going to die. But if you got into an ICU, he'd be treated for two weeks and maybe be okay. So the ICU numbers uh, really affect everything. Is there an internationally recognized set of protocols for what benchmark somebody has to hit in order to gain admission to an ICU, or does it vary from country to country? It varies from country to country. You know, uh, coming from Canada, I can tell you, uh, we make big decisions there on uh, who de who deserves an ICU bed, I guess. Um, and sometimes we say not an ICU candidate. You know, this patient has cancer, this patient's too old, too many comorbidities, high risk of uh, not succeeding, and so we'll save that precious resource for someone else. Uh, but uh, here in this part of the world, one, because you have a little few more resources per capita uh, available, and also because the culture is kind of like what I saw at the Jewish General Hospital uh, when I was in Canada, is no, it's okay, 98 years old, cancer, uh, bedridden, but you're, gonna, you're not going to stop. And so, uh, yeah, ICU admissions are culture and um, region dependent. And also the do not resuscitate and stopping treatment is very different depending on where you are in the world. Here we never, we never stop on someone because the family says no. And that happens, of course, in certain areas in, in North America as well, certain cultures. 
But, you know, when I was working in uh, in Gatineau in Quebec, if someone came in that I knew had very, you know, little chance and was futile, after 24 hours, I would say, now we're going to stop. And, you know, usually would happen. So it's very, very dependent where you are. What about at the other end of the spectrum where you have somebody who is is young and otherwise healthy, but in an acute condition? What is the benchmark of severity to upgrade that person from normal treatment to admission to the ICU? Okay, so that comes to the general criteria of why people need an ICU in the in, in the first place, anywhere in the world. What does an ICU offer that you know a regular hospital bed does not? So to summarize it, because it's complicated, but to summarize it, if you have any cardiorespiratory insufficiency, then you'll need an ICU, either for monitoring or for the support you'll need, which cannot be done on the ward. So when you have to support the heart with powerful medications that you know, pump your heart or increase your blood pressure, that cannot be done in a non-monitored setting. And, uh, and of course, if you need a ventilator, then you can only get a ventilator for respiratory support um, in, in the ICU. So that, that's the general rule. Then there's all the, you know, patients that could need, and so you monitor them. So if someone has a traumatic brain injury and their level of consciousness is low, you monitor them in the ICU in case they deteriorate, in which case they would need to go on the ventilator. So, you know, it's all about heart and lung support. As you know, kidneys are an organ that can be dialyzed and there's people in shopping centers that, you know, are on dialysis. But if your heart or your lungs need support, then you need an ICU. That's the general rule. Let's talk a little bit about training because I mentioned this in passing once in one of my updates is that my very young child, as she then was, ended up in an ICU for a week. When it happened, I got a chance to see the level of specialization. This was in a pediatric ICU. And something as, as simple as like giving a child a glass of water in an ICU or something like that. I mean, everything was recorded. And I was surrounded by these, these nurses and doctors. Who, the level of specialization was just incredible. There was a team there that could do a tracheotomy on a very young child. I, I can't even imagine the level of specialization required for a task like that. Everyone focuses on ventilators, which we'll talk about. But tell me a little bit about the kind of training that goes into the sort of person who works in an ICU. Yeah, that's a good question. So as you said, ventilator is just a machine, but uh, it's about not just managing that machine. That can that can be taught to people that are allied health personnel. Respiratory therapists can manage the machine. But it's the ICU patient is a very complicated patient who has respiratory failure. So you're dealing with that system. And then they end up having multiple systems involved, all in the end organ sort of stage. So any specialty out there, whether it's neurology or respirology or infectious disease, at the end stage... If they're failing, they need an ICU. And so an ICU specialist is someone who can manage sort of the end organ, uh, you know, damage of every system as a whole. So if a patient has two organ systems or eight or five organ systems, they can manage that. And that is a skill set. And uh, that's actually quite a, a precious skill set that not many people have. I mean, I would say, I don't know if this number is true, that probably 99 plus percent of doctors don't know anything about ICU. They've never been in an ICU. They, they would be overwhelmed with an ICU you know, patient of what to do. And even for the ones that have seen ICU been there, they may have been there for a few weeks in their training. So that doesn't mean that they, they know what to do. They kind of you know, spent a month rotation in ICU. And then there's the ICU doctors who are you know, baseline some, something else like a surgeon or an anesthetist or, or internal medicine doctor. And then they specialize by doing a two-year fel rigorous fellowship in critical care where they learn everything about neurocritical care, pulmonary physiology in on the ventilator, you know, 
and like cardiac insufficiency, uh, infect septic shock, you know, all the things that you see in ICU status epilepticus, like seizures. So neurologists can treat seizures, but if it's like seizures that don't stop, they go to the ICU, then you need an ICU guy. So there's a very specialized skill. And now we're finding out that that's probably that and ICU nurses who in their field are also like the elite nurses. Um, uh, These are precious commodities right now. It's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books, like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and, of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist dot com slash quillette try it free for seven days and save 25 percent off your new subscription that's blinkist spelled b-l-i-n-k-i-s-t blinkist.com slash quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25 percent off and now back to our podcast most of the people listening to this are going to be like me they're going to be when it comes to the health sciences they're going to be lay people And I got to say that you're dealing with the usual problems in our brain that most of our knowledge comes from things like watching TV and movies. And and I think also in a lot of people's minds, ICU care, it's kind of vaguely related to emergency medicine. Can you tell me the difference and the interplay between an emergency room physician and ICU? Where does one begin and the other end? Actually, a good question. I would say both are at uh, one end of the spectrum. Emergency medicine is someone who presents in varying degrees of of, uh, stability or instability or sickness, and you don't really know what's going on. So the skill of the emergency room doctor is to figure out quickly what to do to start as a treatment and to just initially resuscitate someone to keep them alive, let's say. Now, once they are in that critical state, the emergency room doctor and the emergency room's goal is to get them out of the emergency room as soon as possible so they can be in the ICU setting. The ICU setting is like a controlled environment where you have, you know, one nurse per patient, you have, you know, highly specialized doctors, and you have all the monitoring that's been set up. They set up monitoring and frequent blood tests and imaging and total body CT scans. And so it's a much more controlled environment. You have a lot of data to analyze. So it's more about uh, working around the physiology of the patient, given what they came in with. The ER is more like the front lines. ICU is kind of like the end. So you can see a patient coming to the ER with an infection, 
you know, the ER doctor diagnoses infection, starts some antibiotics, and he had a fever. We think pneumonia. He gets admitted to the ward, and then he deteriorates, and he goes into respiratory failure, and his kidneys shut down, and his heart's failing, so he goes to the ICU. Then the ICU doctor is managing infection. He probably already knows that there's an infection starting it, but now he's managing the septic shock with the heart failure and the kidney failure, and it's like the other end of the spectrum. You come to ICU medical care and management through the specialty of thoracic surgery. Is that a common route? If we go back um, to 2000, uh, when I did my training, ICU in the world was dominated by anesthetists. And the reason is because the patients are on a ventilator. And of course, the anesthetists in the operating room have the patient on a ventilator. So that was the thinking previously all over the world. And so what would happen is anesthetists would manage the ventilator and then individual doctors would come in, you know, uh, to do their, oh, this guy has infection, call infectious disease. This guy has had a stroke, call neurology. So it was very, very, you know, broken up. And then in about 2000, they started saying ICU is a specialty on its own. And then the people who started doing that fellowship after their residencies were people who were pulmonologists because they were specialists of the lung. So they had two, two years of critical care training. They already were internal medicine doctors, so they knew everything about the body to a medicine point. And then they learned the ICU stuff. And of course, they understood pulmonary physiology. And then what happened in about 2002 when I decided to do my fellowship is they opened it up and said, you know, you can do any number of these three. You can either be a general surgeon or a thoracic surgeon like me is a little bit more, but you could be a general surgeon. You could be an, uh, an anesthetist or you can be an internal medicine specialist. And, and then you can, you know, you have the knowledge base to be able to do an ICU fellowship. And at the end, you churn out this like a uh, generic uh, ICU doctor. I think, you know, this question is kind of like a general question of who should be an ICU doctor. What And we, we actually think about this ourselves. This is a hotly debated topic of there's many ways of thinking of it. Um, if you have a, someone who's a respirologist who becomes an ICU doctor and managing respiratory failure in COVID, uh, you know, they'll do a good job, you know, because it's mostly affecting the lungs only. Um, but, you know, in the ICU in general, you want someone who has a, a skill set more than that. So that's what the ICU training came in. So you could learn all the other things besides your specialty. So, of course, when I round in the ICU, because of the two years, I'm this generic ICU doctor who knows the same thing as the respirologist, as the anesthetist about ICU. But my skill is I'm also a surgeon. So that, that's what I bring to ICU, as opposed to my colleague who's an anesthetist. So he brings that aspect, but he doesn't have the surgical aspect. So ICUs turn into this multidisciplinary group of people who are all ICU doctors, but all bring all they each bring something different uh, to the table. So let's talk a little bit about the concentration of human resources, because you mentioned in passing that in an ICU you might have typically have one nurse per patient. How would this compare with other contexts in a hospital? So you can say there's a, basically three levels of care. Uh, so ICU is a one-to-one, -one, and that is probably, I told you before, what defines ICU is cardiorespiratory support. But actually, the hard, you know, actually difference between ICU and anywhere else is that you have a one-to-one -one nursing ratio with patients. So that that is actually the big difference. So sometimes you have a patient that needs one-to-one -one nursing. You'll have a young patient who's in diabetic ketoacidosis and needs a lot of care. They're not on the ventilator. Their heart's fine, but they need so much care that on the ward the nurse would not be able to manage because she has six patients, you know. So then they say, can we admit her to the ICU because we need a lot of heavy nursing care? So that is uh, something to consider. So you have the ward where, you know, sometimes in Canada, you'll see one nurse has eight patients or 10 patients. They're overworked. Usually they shouldn't, uh, you know, exceed six or, or eight. 
Uh, four is a good number. And then there's uh, ICU, which is one-to-one. -one. And then we have intermediate care units that not all hospitals are lucky enough to have. We have one here in my ICU. I have a, a step-down unit, we call it, but you could call it a high dependency unit or, a, or an intermediate care unit where we have one-to-two ratio. So one nurse for two patients. So that's, that's basically the three different levels you have. So let's talk a little bit about respirators, because if you, if you did a media scan for appearance of that word, you'd probably see it spiked by a factor of a thousand in the last <laughs> month or two. Yeah. It's uh, grim, but people are educating themselves about te technology. On, on a basic level, it's, it's sort of like, I guess, early 20th century technology. You're basically forcing air or oxygen into somebody's lungs. Is that right? Uh, like how, how complex are the, is the mechanics of the actual device? You can look at respirators in a very simple way or a very complex way. And actually now these days, they're very complex. They're like artificial intelligence. They figure out what the patient needs. So the basics of the ventilator is the lungs perform two things. You Oxygen is delivered to the lungs so that oxygen can be given to the rest of the body. And then carbon dioxide is removed. So this is what you do with your lungs now. There's a lot of factors like resistance and compliance and and pressures and peak pressures. And so this is what the ventilator, it does. You know, it delivers oxygen, of course, and it removes carbon dioxide. But depending on the patient and depending on the patient's uh, physics and physiologic parameters, you need different levels of support, either dialing in certain volumes or dialing in certain pressure levels. Um, and so, you know, the ventilator becomes this complicated lung basically and the lungs are a complicated uh, organ so you know these ventilators are getting more and more sophisticated to the point that we have ventilators now that that work on their own uh, they're intelligent ventilators they're called intellivents and they figure out by measuring resistance and compliance and a lot of other parameters of what the best pressure to dial in is or how much uh, peak positive end exploratory pressure to dial in to get the optimal graph of you know oxygen and co2 and things like that so they are so complicated that the specialty developed of respiratory therapists, you know, so you had before nurses and doctors, and now there's another allied health specialty called, as we have in Canada and here, uh, respiratory therapists. So these are people that graduate from, you know, college, and then they go to four years of basically learning how to manage a ventilator. And so in the ICU, of course, I have my nurse, but I also have respiratory therapists, and they're in charge of the ventilators. So that's how complicated it could be that you need someone specially dedicated just to the ventilator. You talk about the ventilator as being, to some extent, like taking the place of lungs. But of course, unfortunately, there's one thing lungs can do that no machine can do, which is acting as a gateway to absorb oxygen into the body. And it sounds like this horrible disease, COVID-19, like other respiratory conditions, at some level, it just compromises the ability of lungs and associated systems in your body to absorb oxygen and, and there's absolutely nothing respirators can do. Is, am I describing things right as, as a layperson? Because Yeah, that's good. That's very good. So this will segue into what we do when the lungs cannot be supported with the ventilator anymore. So if you, if you Google ICU respiratory, the most common word you'll see is ARDS, okay, adult respiratory distress syndrome. Any conference you go to, when I go to my Toronto conference at the Sheraton Critical Care Forum in October, November, there's an entire track on just ARDS. This is, and by the way, Italy is a world leader in this, and Toronto is also actually, specifically at Sunnybrook. So this is something where the lungs get so uh, inflamed and fibrosed that as you say, 
either you're not able to deliver the oxygen because of low compliance and resistance, or if you do deliver the oxygen, it, the, the blood's not able to absorb it so that you cannot oxygenate the body. So then we have maneuvers. This is now severe respiratory failure, which speaks to the fact that not all ICU patients are the same. So you can have an ICU patient that needs monitoring. That's one type of ICU patient. You can have one you know, COVID patient that is not able to support oxygenation, so they need to be put on the ventilator, but on low parameters, 30% oxygen, uh, minimal pressure, and that's fine. Or you could have the ones, which is what we worry about, which are spiraling down and their lungs are failing, that even with the ventilator, we cannot maintain oxygenation to the cells of the body. And so then we have now the ARDS situation in which we have different maneuvers and different treatments. But one of the things we do at the end stage is forget the ventilator, we put the patient on ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which I guess to simplify is like the bypass machine that's used in, in heart surgery. You basically you know, remove the, the venous blood from the body uh, that would have gone to the lungs to get oxygenated, and then you return it to an artery in the body oxygenated through the machine, and then it pumps it back into the body so the body's able to sort of bypass the lungs. So we do have that here. Not all the patients, not all the centers have ECMO. And actually, the Italian uh, experiences that ECMO did not really help them in terms of saving patients. Once they, once they went to that stage of needing ECMO, putting them on ECMO did not help them. But anyway, this is a rescue therapy that if the lungs are so bad that the, even the ventilator at maximum cannot support oxygenation, then you, you have that option of ECMO. And we have ECMO here, and we might use it. We haven't used it yet, but we might. That's an extraordinary technology. It's almost like an artificial gill, like in a fish. <laughs> yeah, actually, this technology has been around for a while. The thing that's amazing is it was always only used for bypass surgery. You know, when you operate on the heart, you have to stop the heart. So what's going to happen? So you have to somehow take the place of the heart. So that's where the heart-lung machine came in in like the 1950s and 60s and that you can do open-heart surgery. But then uh, actually as early as 1990s, I remember writing a paper about this uh, in Montreal at the Montreal General Hospital, is people would use this technology for respiratory failure, for ARDS. And now actually a center is measured as a sort of A-plus center or a, like a six-star center if they have ECMO capability. So yeah, the technology is amazing and it saves a lot of people. For, let's forget COVID right now. We use ECMO here, and sometimes you have a patient with H1N1 or some other severe pneumonia where the lungs are just all white and turned into cement, and you put this patient on ECMO, let the lungs recover, and let the machine do the work of the lungs, and then two weeks later, you're able to wean off the ECMO, and the lungs hopefully recover, and these patients survive. A short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com Quillette. That's 
betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. Let me ask you a broader question because you and I, we knew each other, God, I think 35 years ago in high school. And then we fell back into contact because I remember, I forget how I learned it, but you went to Pakistan. Pakistan had a horrible earthquake and you went there and, well, there's no other way to put it. You, you saved lives. You uh, we're part of uh, a team there, and you wrote an incredible report about it for the National Post newspaper, where I worked at the time. And I think that's what I associated with with what you do, is the actual business of hands-on saving people's lives. And in that kind of, of tragedy, as Pakistan then had with thousands of people dying, I think that's kind of what we associate with this sort of um, life-saving medicine. COVID-19 is such a different kind of health issue because when an earthquake strikes and you're a doctor treating patients, you yourself are not at risk when you're saving that person's life. But with an infectious disease, there's always the question of doctors and nurses getting infected, and there's a certain distancing and and, and fear that exists. Can you tell me a little bit about the psychological and professional aspect of what it's like to be a health professional treating people in the context of having to protect yourself from the disease? Uh, the, the main difference, of course, there's many differences, by the way, between uh, natural disasters like the, like the earthquake or, or, or COVID-19. You hit on one of the main ones for doctors, which is doctors will work hard in a natural disaster like the earthquake, um, but they won't change the way they work. They may be working harder, longer hours, uh, forced to use equipment that they're not used to, but uh, they're not worried about their own safety besides exhaustion, you know, or maybe the mental effect of seeing so many patients need, needing surgery. But here, the main issue we're dealing with here is the fear and the, the um, burnout already, only a few weeks here, of doctors who've done one straight week of ICU, nurses that have done one week of ICU, spending six hours in a room with full PPE, protective equipment, in that mask that if you wore, you know, for 20 minutes with the gown and the shield, you wouldn't, you know, want, you'd want to get out of there for six hours without a break. And then thinking and reading these things about how many dozens of doctors have died in Seattle and Italy and all over the world, and how many nurses have it. And just like thinking, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be next, you know, and uh, doctors are want, they want to help, you know, in the Pakistan earthquake, everyone wanted to help. Here you can see they're asking for volunteers and they're not getting a lot of volunteers. And so they're going to have to enforce, you know, like doctors, you must work, you must designate people to work. So yeah, that is, that is the big difference. With a natural disaster, everything happens all of a sudden and once, you can say. And so you're immediately overwhelmed, but then slows down afterwards. So initially you mobilize a lot of people, you mobilize a lot of resources, and then you go to work and then eventually it slows down. So it's kind of a predictable situation. You you see what bang what you have to deal with and then you go to work. Um, here, you know, first of all, initially things seem kind of okay and you're not sure which what's going. You think it's not really going to be as bad here as it is there. And so you're it's a dynamic process. It's not predictable. Um, and you have time to prepare, which you don't have in the earthquake situation. Uh, you have time, but sometimes it's like too much time and you take it lightly. 
Um, and the other big difference is earthquake happens in one area. So if there's an earthquake in Pakistan, well, you know, people from Turkey can come and help and people from Iran can come, U.S. can come and help. But this is a global thing where everyone's just taking care of their own people and their own system. And so you're stuck with what you have. Everyone's fighting for ventilators. Everyone's fighting for nurses and ICU doctors. Everyone's fighting for the testing kits and the vaccine. So this is like every man for himself, you know, so that that's a big difference also. One of the interesting and terrible things about this disease is that even in countries that have relatively good levels of health resources, the level of concentration is so enormous that local hospitals get overwhelmed. And of course, Bergamo, Italy is an example. You're seeing it in New York City to some extent, obviously, uh, Wuhan and China. One possible partial solution to this, which I mentioned in one of my updates, was in France, they now have these medical trains where there'll be these train cars that are equipped with all kinds of nurses and critical equipment, and patients will go on the train and be taken to parts of France that are less affected. Typically, they're going from east to west because it's the eastern part of the country that's been most affected. What are strategies that countries can use, and of course, I'm including ICU staff here, to if they have like 100 people looking for ICE resources in their hospital and in the neighboring city there's five, are things like trains, is, is this inevitable that there's going to be some kind of apparatus for dispersing these cases around regions and countries? Yeah, the, you know what France is doing, that's great because um, this is what you need to get through this. You need to be centralized. And the problem in the U.S. is going to be uh, that if you're in Seattle and you're overwhelmed and you run out of ICU beds, but there's a hospital in, uh, you know, Kansas City that has like an empty ICU. You cannot make use of it, you know. And one is distance. And second is they're not connected at all in any way. When you say centralized, you mean a centralized form of logistics and case management. Exactly. So I'll, I'll give an example of what I was very happy to see when I came here. It was just newly developed. In Qatar, we have uh, now Qatar is, you know, a smaller country with a smaller population. But still, it has a lot of hospitals and a lot of ICUs. And so there was something called uh, the critical care network that was developed and basically, there's a group of us, a uh, core, core group, that uh, you know meets once a week. And we, we have all the data every morning of every ICU bed in the country, what their status is. How many, how many available beds are there? What are the status of the patients that are there? Are they about to be discharged? Are they not going to go because they're like grade three, still on the ventilator, doing badly? We have a global picture of what's going on. So my daily routine here before COVID is I would get called by other ICU. Now, I'm the director of the trauma ICU, but if I had three, four beds because it was not so busy trauma-wise, I would get called from the medical ICU that, listen, we're full, you know, and we need a couple of beds, you know. We see on the flow chart that you have a couple of beds. So can we, you know, use those beds? And that's just here within the hospital I work in. We do this across the whole country. So, you know, if there is a bed in the hospital one hour away, then we say, okay, there's a bed there. So let's try to transfer someone stable there and you make room in your ICU for the unstable patient. So you need a, a centralized way of looking at all your resources. Of course, the bigger the country and the more people there are and the more, you know, like states or provinces or whatever you have, much harder to, to do something like that. They, they don't talk to each other normally. We're getting to a paradox, which other people have mentioned, but you sent me a graphic that just stunned me, which is about ICU capacity, which we're talking about, and the relationship statistically around the world with the effect of COVID-19. You would think that 
higher levels of ICU capacity would help nations. And of course, on a day-to-day basis, it does. But you sent me this incredible graph which showed that some of the nations which have the highest per capita ICU capacity, talking about Italy, France, United States, they are also some of the countries that have the highest death toll and certainly the number of, highest number of cases from COVID-19. Obviously, ICUs aren't hurting people, but there seems to be this weird pattern with this disease that some of the most affluent nations with the highest levels of medical resources are the ones that are being most afflicted by this disease. Are you familiar with any other medical phenomena that, that this pattern replicates itself? It just seems very strange to me. Yeah, when when I first saw this graph, I was also shocked. Like, what a coincidence! It's like a, one of those scary, you know, uh, law and order, criminal intent kind of moments, you know. That 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 eerie music comes on. Yeah, exactly, like, the eerie music. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, so I had to think about this, you know, and um, you know, part of the thinking is any th- thinking that anyone else can do, which is okay. Let's think about you know geo demographics and societies and culture. So I'm not going to comment too much on that because you know you're more able to do that and. I want to stick to doctor, uh, you know, ICU stuff. But just as a general comment, I would say these are all affluent countries that are world leaders in ICU. Um, they have a lot of facilities. So then, what's the issue? So just as a as a side societal comment, these are also all countries that value two things a lot, which is freedom and also the protecting their economy. So the problem there is not that it's a bad thing, but the one week or whatever delay in getting on top of this crisis biased by those things that, well, there's a little bit of arrogance also that, well, we're good, you know, so we can handle this or maybe it won't happen to us. We're good at ICU and, well, we want people to keep going out and shopping. And people also have this freedom where, well, they're suggesting not to get together, but let's just get together anyway, you know, like it's not going to happen to me. All these factors all lead to being behind the the game, you know, being a stage behind. And in this crisis, it's all about the stages. So you want to stay ahead of the game. If you're behind one stage, you're in big trouble. And it doesn't matter how many ICUs or how many ICU beds you have. You could be Seattle with great, beautiful ICUs. But if you get overwhelmed suddenly because of those other societal things, then you're in big trouble because you're not going to all of a sudden be able to use the ICU beds that are free in New York, you know, and then they're going to have their own issues. So that's what happened. They suddenly got overwhelmed and doesn't matter how good you are, you're not, no one can handle that unless you're China and you build a 1000 bed hospital in five days with 1000 ICU beds, then that, that is a solution. But otherwise uh, you're in big trouble. The other thing about those numbers on the graph is these are ICU beds total per capita. It doesn't tell you how many ICU beds, first of all, are available per capita. So I'll give you an example in Canada. I worked in Sunnybrook in Toronto, and we had more ICU beds at Sunnybrook than all of Qatar. The problem is all those ICU beds were being used. So so great. You have a lot of ICU beds per capita, uh, and even in Sunnybrook, you know, an amazing amount of ICU beds. But because of the population is older, they have more comorbidities, they do more complicated surgery maybe, these ICU beds are all full. So actually when you need an ICU bed, it was a daily struggle to find an ICU bed for your patient. Somewhere which has less ICU bed per capita, but there are more beds available, it's not that they won't get filled, but that you're a step ahead of the, them getting filled. So if we have 
also 120 ICU beds in the whole country right now, same as Sunnybrook. But we have 30 people intubated, you know, for Corona, for COVID. Then we can start thinking where are we going to now emergently build more ICU beds before we need them. So we will not be able, we will not have to say, oh, sorry, no ICU bed for you, you will die. Just looking at some of the numbers here, these are the countries with the most critical care beds per capita. Total number of critical care beds per 100,000 inhabitants. Uh, Just as a baseline, like India, 2.3, China, 3.6. This is before COVID-19, of course. It's probably higher now. But then you get up at the highest level, United States, 34.7. So that's an order of magnitude over China and India. Germany, 29.2. Then it falls off to Italy at 12.5, still very high. France, 11.6. South Korea, 10.6. Spain, 9.7. I just named like all the countries where the COVID-19 crisis is greatest. It really is a paradox. You mentioned this conference that's coming up in late fall, early winter. What is the name of the conference that's taking place? Uh, This is the Canadian Critical Care Forum. It's like a world-class conference of four or five days that every year takes place in Toronto and people from all over the world come to either present or attend. That's my conference leave I take every year. We're allowed one conference leave uh, fully paid when you work here in Doha. And that's the one I choose. One, because it's a great conference related to my field. And secondly, well, I'm able to go to Toronto. Well, I, I hope it takes place and I hope I get a chance to see you. But how much of that conference, and I, I think I probably know the answer, will be dedicated to issues related to COVID-19? I can safely say that this entire conference will be about COVID. If it takes place, they're going to forget about all the other topics we discussed. This is so huge, that, and there's so many things to discuss in an ICU level, uh, whether what you were talking about even before, mental health of workers or how to replace, how to do kidney replacement therapy in a corona patient, the different types of respiratory resource allocation. Each country is going to have someone representing, telling their experience. You'll have a bunch of people from China, Italy coming to that. I think the whole conference will be about COVID. Tala Chugtai, thank you so much for being on our podcast and for helping saving lives. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.